Okay, so good evening, everybody. Thank you for coming for the rare Tuesday Culinary Historian Chicago Foodways Roundtable meeting. We don't have them too often, but I'm really glad when people do show up. Um, so tonight's program is on Filipino food. And my friend Helen is here tonight. So I've learned a tremendous amount about Filipino food and culture the last 20 years. In fact, another time where we had a Filipino, not your Filipino program, but another one before that, I was sort of like the Budinsky. But what about this? And what about that? And only because I heard all the stories from you, Helen. Because <laughs> all these other people had emigrated, like uh, uh, Fuller from, they used to be with the Sun-Times. She emigrated here as a child. And you immigrated when you were like 15, 16. So there were certain things that you had experienced that she hadn't. And there I am, the Budinsky in the front row going, but what about? Anyway, but I'm not here tonight to be a Budinsky. Uh, Amy Bessa, I've met now at least twice before. And we've had many emails going on in the past about coming to do a talk. And it never quite worked out. So this is one of these programs that I call, it took a few years to arrange. And I finally decided, okay, they're here on a Tuesday. Let's try to make it work. And we are. We have Amy Bessa and her husband tonight, um, Chef Rami. Yes, he looks so tired. He looks so tired. Oh, believe me, that's my foil. I stand in the front row and then I go to sleep on the speaker. I'll try not to do that tonight, sorry. Um, but they have a successful restaurants in New York and Manila, correct? And she's very passionate and they have the cookbook, The uh, Dreams of a Philippine... Memories. Memories of a Philippine Kitchen. Memories, Memory, sorry, which we have here tonight, those books, which will sell for $30 and they're actually listed at 45. Wow, well, yeah, I know. Well, I wanted to go in people's hands. Here's the difference. All right, Amy, turn over to you. Okay, thanks. You're welcome. <laughs> Well, so nice to have somebody who's always trying to make everybody happy. Every email she sends me, I want you to be happy, you know. But, you know, every time I speak about Filipino food, I am happy. So um, the reason we're here is because uh, the Philippine Department of Foreign Affairs um, approached me and asked me, uh, because uh, they have uh, a mandate, to promote Filipino food. I guess all the departments are vying for that, right? There's the Department of Tourism, there's the Department of Agriculture, and uh, the Department of Foreign Affairs, which is amazing. Um, and they want to promote Filipino food abroad. Now, and it's an opportune moment because there's a lot of interest on the food, right? And the advantage of the Department of Foreign Affairs is that they own the consulates and the embassies. And that's why we can do this. And so uh, when they approached me, I said, well, um, and they gave me a free hand. Um, you can do whatever you want. And um, for me, because there's so many things going on with promoting Filipino food, I just felt that we, I, I had a responsibility to focus on something about Filipino food that would at least leave people with some basic information about the food. Because most of the promotion of Filipino food uh, is uh, done by 
showcasing dishes. Uh, and if you look at all the books that were written, at least before we did Memories of Philippine Kitchens, it's a listing of things, which is great, right? If you list dishes and list uh, what people do in every region, and people have been looking at this food regionally and saying, oh, in this region, these are the dishes. And which is great, because it is a nice way to introduce food, but I felt that there's something deeper going on, and I really wanted to do it in terms of flavors and doing the flavor profiles of the Filipinos. And how do you discover flavors? It's by ingredients. And uh, because of the influence of the Western countries and globalization and modernization, a lot of the indigenous ingredients in the Philippines are being replaced by processed foods. Um, so I, when, I, when we opened Purple Yam in Malate, I set about discovering as many ingredients, indigenous artisanal ingredients that still exist in the rural areas and then cooking food with that. Because for me, when you do a menu about uh, in a restaurant or in a, well, coming up with a meal, when you start listing dishes, I, I really believe that's putting the, uh, the cart before the horse. So the way we formulate menus now, at least in Malate, is we figure out what ingredients we have. And then out of the ingredients, we build dishes. And out of the dishes, we build a logical menu that would begin you know, from the very beginning till the end. And that every single one follows logically, and every single dish and every flavor and every ingredient makes sense, because we always look back at how the people do it. Um, and there are dishes there. When, after we're done, we can showcase um, an adobo made with sukang uh, iloko, because I, I think you cannot really understand adobo until you understand vinegars. And the vinegars come in many forms, right? I mean, sources. Basically, they come from uh, palms, palm sap, and we have four major palms in the Philippines. That's coconut, nipa, buri, and kaong. Those are the four major palms. And each variety of palm produces sap. And the sap, once you gather it, if you cook it fast, it can turn into syrup and sugar. And if you don't cook it, it ferments. And then it becomes toddy or tuba. And then if you continue fermentation, it becomes vinegar. But if you get it as tuba and distill it, then you get like a vodka. You get lambanog. And all, all of those four. Uh, produce uh, vinegars, right? Another source of vinegar is sugarcane, and that's what we have now. Um, we've cooked that with adobo. 
Uh, and that comes from the southern part, Sukang uh, Iloko. And that's one, uh, that vinegar for me. There, we brought two vinegars that I think are the two best vinegars I have encountered in the Philippines. And it's because they're aged at least a year. Now, the, the, the problem there is that people are very poor. They cannot afford to age. Because when you age, they lose 50%. Uh, you know, through evaporation, and they need money. They, they don't have the luxury to wait a year before they can sell their product. So when we find a product like this, we, we really treasure it, and that's why I promote it. Um, and, then, um, uh, and then another source of vinegar is uh, fruits. Alvin, did we bring mulberry? No, he didn't? Okay. Because we have, um, you know, uh, all, anything with sugar will ferment, and you can make vinegar out of most fruits that have sugar and, and juice. Okay, so anyway, so uh, after this talk, we, I was able to bring close to 50 ingredients. Uh, we can't, couldn't bring most of them here, but a, a great, majority, like to me, the ones that are really very exciting, we have here. And uh, when you go over there and taste it, we will explain why. Like we have some peanut, which is um, native raspberries. And see, this is one thing that I'm so excited about, right? This is one thing I've learned. I've encountered cherries, blueberries, and raspberries. And so to me, that means it's like another box broken up. You know, like we always think that those are Western fruits, but not necessarily. They will grow, some varieties will grow in Asia, well, up in the mountains. And they're very different. Uh, it's an acquired taste, you know, like uh, the, the sampinit is very grassy, you know, like, so when you approach these things, approach them with an open mind and approach and, and think that of terroir. You know, and these are the flavors that our soil, water, and air produce. And a lot of them, the flavors also come because of the environment. Like a lot of Asian fruits have astringent sap in them. And it's because they have to protect themselves from so many insects and predators. Right, so th that's uh, why uh, some fruits, like for me, like a lot of fragrant and floral fruits come from India, like tamarind, jackfruit, um, you know, uh, uh, mangoes, all of those come. I, it's, it's, I always play a game with myself whenever I encounter a fruit, you know, I, I study the flavors and all the characteristics and I say, maybe this came from there, right? Sometimes I, I hit it right, you know? But it's very nice to start theorizing and gathering information and making sense out of them. And this is what I wanted to uh, talk about. It's when I got the book contract in, uh, I think, 2003 from Stuart Tabori and Chang, which is now Abrams. Um, 
started by Martha Stewart's husband, right? Uh, well, yeah, they jumped ship from Abrams, they formed Stewart Tabor in Chang, and then they ran out of money and Abrams bought them back, right? So, but anyway, while they were Stewart Tabor in Chang, they really did a lot of uh, beautiful books, and they, uh, when they gave me a book contract, uh, I th it was just out of a dare, and somebody said, you know, if I can find you a publisher, would you do a book? And I said, sure. They'd never find me. And then I got on. So I said, oh my God. So um, how do you write about this food, right, and this culture? It's so diverse. But then, you know, I started reading, and out of my, the two major uh, writers uh, that I really, used, right? One is Doreen Fernandez, who is like the best food scholar and writer in the Philippines. Unfortunately, she's gone. And the other is an American food scholar, uh, Ray Sokolov. Oh, sure. It was so brilliant. Huh? Oh, it was. Huh? It was Ray Sokolov from the Wall Street Journal. Yes, yes. He's retired now. Right. Yeah, but... Um, if you're really interested, uh, if any food, uh, any scholars who really want to learn more about how to look at Philippine food, uh, the most important essay that Doreen Fernandez wrote was Culture Ingested. And it's about indigenization of food. Uh, and that helps explain why all these foreign influences and why they exist. Um, and you can just download that. On, online. And the other book by Ray Sokolov uh, is Why We Eat What We Eat. And um, Ray, that book is uh, how many cultures and countries reacted with the, inf with the uh, influence of Spanish culture. They were all Spanish colonies. And he was able to distinguish how each culture interacted with the colonizer. And in Mexico, he was saying that the uh, fusion of Aztec and Spanish was so total that it's very difficult to distinguish what is Aztec and what is Spanish now in Mexico. And then he looked at Puerto Rico, where he said the original culture and um, people there were totally obliterated by, uh, you know, by disease and by death, you know, they were killed. Um, so whatever, what exists now in Puerto Rico is a transplanted Caribbean culture, no longer the original. Then when he came to the Philippines, he said, you know, this is the most unique society he had encountered where people, uh, protected and, and preserved their own, embraced. I mean, the Filipinos eat whatever hits them, you know? Very, very Catholic, very, very embracing, very open, you know, to foreign foods. But uh, he noticed that Filipinos can keep these foods alive and existing alongside foreign foods. Uh, and an example of that would be the rice cake, the suman, and the tuba, you know, which is a, the coconut toddy. Because Pigafetta, the historian that came along with Magellan, uh, noted that as what the natives gave them when they arrived. 
And they're still in its present existence. We still eat that and we still drink the tuba, you know. So it's around. So, okay, that's the culture ingested. Um, that's Doreen. Uh, I, I got this online, so Philippine is misspelled. <laughs> Whoever put that in did not. Philippine is spelled with one L, double P. Okay? Uh, that's, what, that's what indigenization will tell you about. And that's Ray Sokolov's book. And uh, because of those two, I was able to form two basic categories of how to look at our food. There's food that was always ours, and that's everything in our environment, what is indigenous and what people did to it. So, um, you know, before, of course there was always foreign influences coming in. Even the whole country, uh, our, our, you know, or was originally populated by people that came from everywhere, right? From other islands, like from India. We were, we were Hinduized first before the Arabs came and then the Indonesians from Sumatra came, okay? And then, uh, then we have food that was borrowed, but made our own. And that's the whole point of uh, culture ingested because um, we did not just borrow food, but we made it our own. So if we saw paella, we made bringhe out of it. We have a lot of tamales in, in the Philippines, but they're not made with corn and wrapped, they're not wrapped in corn husk, they're made with rice and wrapped in bananas. And you know, the most, uh, I'll, I'll talk about, for me, the, the most, a famous example of indigenized food is what the Americans gave us, you know, like uh, buko pie. You know, pie is American. That's what Ray Sokolov said, you know, pie is American, but then we filled it with young coconut. Yeah. So uh, th those are the tamales. Um, they're made with rice and filled with all kinds of, uh, you know, toppings. And I, I, this is a little bit more of the hidden aspect of Filipino food. I didn't, I only, th I thought that there were only like two types of tamales, you know, Pampanga and Cavite, but um, I posted something on Facebook and I got like a hundred responses saying, well, we have tamales here, you know, okay. So that's, and then um, the tamales we borrowed from Mexico, this is a version of uh, what the Chinese gave us, because the Chinese gave us noodles and uh, rolls, spring rolls, the lumpia. So that's what we do. Those noodles are bihon, which is rice noodle. We call our noodles uh, names depending on what flour or what uh, starch is used. So bihon is rice, okay? And uh, spring rolls came from China, so those, those, the, the, the way we do spring rolls and noodles, you won't find them in China. And it's funny because they're called like Lumpia Shanghai. You go to Shanghai, you won't ever see that. Or you know, like Pansit Canton, that's not Cantonese. You know, you go to Hong Kong, you never see that. And all kinds of spring rolls, um, fresh. We call it fresh Lumpia because it's not fried and all kinds of fillings. And the right one is um, made with ube, or purple yam, and romi 
that's Romy's innovation. And on the left side, the, the Malate chefs, uh, is, they use taro flour from the indigenous people. You know, so, and then they studied it with cosmos flowers. So that's their innovation. Um, this is the Bukopai, which I, I really think is uh, an indigenized version of uh, the American pie, because Americans love, it's, Americans are all about two crust, double crusted pies, right? As American as apple pie. So we filled it with buko, or young coconut. Um, okay, I, um, right now I kind of focus in on food that was always ours. So I go around, the, you know, look for indigenous ingredients that I can find. And most of the, the ingredients I focus on are very mundane ingredients. You know, I don't look for anything too exotic, right? Because I want them to be used. So uh, I basically f uh, focus in on ingredients that are unknown, undervalued, or ignored, you know, like vinegars, you know. Okay, um, okay. Basically, well, I, the three dishes that I consider as food that was always ours, as opposed to borrowed food, as I just said, all the Spanish food, like the afritadas, the morcons, the, what, you know, the, anything with tomato sauce, and the, it's all fiesta fare. Those are Spanish, and then the tamales, and fruits and vegetables, like tomatoes, potatoes, peppers, all came from Mexico. The guyabano, you know, the caimito, all those came from Mexico. And then, uh, you know, the the, the Americans gave us fast food and canned goods, you know. So uh, for food that I feel came from the Philippines, they're basically three, and they're not just dishes, they're cooking methods, because you can do many things with them. This is the oldest, uh, the kinilao, which is, you know, for lack of a better term, we compare it to ceviche, but it is not really ceviche, but it's raw seafood. Uh, and it's not marinated, it's not cooked in the acid base, it's just, it just has a bath just before you serve it. So um, th that is the oldest dish that we can claim because they've got fossils of it. Uh, they dug up like 1,500 year old fossils in, down in Mindanao. And the reason they know that it is kinilao, because the traditional way of making kinilao is uh, bathing the seafood in prehistoric nuts, like the dungon or the tabon-tabon. Uh, supposedly, uh, you know, you, they're really hard nuts that you grate and then you put it in water and then you bathe the fish or the seafood in it before you eat it. And according to what I read, those just give it enzymes so that uh, because it's very hard to uh, digest raw seafood, so that um, makes it easily digestible. So uh, when they dug up all these fossils, they found fish bones, along with the remains of these two, the tabon-tabon and the duon. And that combination is the kinilao. Okay. Um, and... Uh, this is the sinigang, which is the sour broth. Uh, and uh, it, in the Visayas, they call it tinola. And it is soured by uh, fruits, sour fruits, and citrus. Fruits, leaves, 
and citrus juices. Okay. And any, it can, you can make it with any protein. It's a sour broth or sour soup. Uh, and then the adobo. And the adobo has got to be made with vinegar. I know some people use uh, lemons and, you know, that's not adobo, that's something else. Okay. So it is a brace of, uh, in a vinegar. And Ray Sokolov uh, wrote in his chapter on the Philippines, and he really believes that this is our food because because it has an adobe, uh, a Spanish name, and a lot of people say, oh, we got that from Spanish. And he said he looked at all the adobos from all the Latin hemispheres, and he says, you know, you are the only ones that brace the protein in vinegar. So he believes, that's his theory, that this was being done even before the Spanish came, and because of it being sour, uh, reminded Spanish of adobo and put, gave that name. But that process of bracing it in vinegar is ours. Okay. okay. Um, this, I'm just going to go uh, fast with this because this, uh, the, we have many indigenous communities in the Philippines uh, and the name of the indigenous uh, community uh, is a reflection of where they are located. So if you say Dumagat, that means they live along the Sierra Madre uh, mountain range in Luzon, which is just north of Manila. You know, if you say Mangyan, that means Mindoro. You know, like um, just wanted uh, the reason we're focusing in uh, on the Dumagat is because we really want to preserve these indigenous people because they have the, some of the purest and untainted lands. Uh, they live deep in the forest and if you get product from them, we buy product from them to give them livelihoods. I mean, you know that it's really organic. <laughs> You know, they, there's no chemicals, no pesticide, nothing. And they grow a lot of indigenous products that we don't even know. So uh, we really want to, pre, uh, you know, we really want to protect them. So this is an extreme example of food that was always ours. Because they live in rainforests or, uh, you know, uh, these are communities that have little contact with the outside world, okay? Uh, and these uh, photos are, uh, were compiled by a friend of mine who works with them and lives with them uh, regularly and has documented some of the food and their methods of living. So it's just a, a very uh, brief glimpse of what they do. And these are different areas of Rizal. So uh, they grow a lot uh, of uh, greens and we buy them. Uh, whatever they don't consume. We don't want to create an, an atmosphere where they, have, they sell product that's expensive and then they stop eating it. You know, just like what's happening with quinoa. But so we're very, very respectful of that. So uh, uh, what is this? Uh, 
Okay, it's a dumagat remontado because there are two kinds of dumagats. So the remontados are the people that really have a little bit more outside contact with the outside world. There's like really deep dumagat inside and they, you know, we don't really want to disturb that. Okay. And uh, these are some of the products that we buy, the green onions. And that's the giant saba, which is a, our version of plantain. I've had it, and it's like this, three people can eat it. And it's very, and, and it's amazing experience to eat it because from beginning, from one end to the other, the flavors change. So the middle, it's more like uh, jackfruit and mango. And then one end, the, uh, it's very astringent, it's full of, it's really protected. Um, see, that's how big they are, you know. And they also grow pineapple, you know. So this is another uh, community, and they grow all these uh, green, little, uh, what are those, garlic or? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I, we buy the garlic, it's so good, you know, and we use it for our cooking. This is a green, this is a sour fruit that I've never heard about, bilukao, uh, and they use it for souring, uh, I guess soups, right? You know, that, that's what it looks like. I've never encountered it before. And then they still have wild boar. And then they, there's another tibukao, there's another souring ingredient there. So you know all our uh, what I consider f uh, food that was always ours. It's uh, they are all united by sourness because uh, sourness is a major uh, flavor of the Philippines. Unlike you know if you compare it with other Southeast Asian cultures, um, like if you look at uh, the food as like a theater, you know uh, sourness is a major character. Whereas in other cuisines, it's a supporting character. It's still important. Okay, and these are the kids, and um, they love ha honey, you know. Uh, that's how they, uh, and there's a, a native bee, which is called liguan, and that's probably it. That's the bee that you find in those rainforests. Okay, these are their products, uh, the kadios, those are the beans and garlic, uh, you know. Okay, that's the honey. This another uh, barangay. That's the cashew. I, I, do we have cashews? No, we didn't bring the cashews, no, okay. And, uh, oh, this is a very interesting leaf. Uh, they call it tigbak, and it's like pandan. It functions like a pandan. Uh, and they cook rice with it. That's, that's how they cook it, you know. Uh, and it gives fragrance and flavor. That's the tigbak. And um, my friend is the one. These are her notes, you know, how she's eating and cooking with them. Uh, okay, this is the sampinit, which is our native raspberry. We brought... Um, we brought the jam, and it's from that organic farm in Dolores. That's where it comes from. Okay, um, and 
That's another book that I use by Sid Mintz. God bless his soul. He, he left us, what, a couple of years ago. And uh, this is another, he put forth a very interesting theory that there's no such thing as national cuisine, just regional cuisine. And like 15 years ago, I had an argument with him. I said, no, we have national cuisine. But then I was, just before he passed away, I was able to tell him, I, I think you're right. <laughs> After 22 years of studying my food, you know, because it's whatever grows in the areas. And those are the flavors and the, the, the food that people cook with. I think, okay, and another key construct that I use is cultural preference. Um, I learned this while I was uh, doing my, uh, my, my essay for the Oxford University Press. You know, they have an Oxford companion to sugar and sweets. They just came out with that three years ago. And they asked me to write the section on the Philippines. And since a lot of our native desserts are uh, use glutinous rice, um, a very good friend of ours who's a dean of science in NYU, and he's one of the top geneticists of the country, his expertise is in rice, and he wrote a, a paper on glutinous rice. And uh, I learned this whole concept from him. He said, you know, glutinous rice started in Southeast Asia, there's like a triangle there. I think it's Thailand, Laos, and Cambodia, I think. Um, and, uh, and he said, you know, glutinous rice is not a variety. It's not a separate variety. It's a mutation of a variety. So, and he said every grain has a mutated version of itself. And he said that triangle, that area, in Southeast Asia liked it so much that they replanted and, and traveled with it. Now, that's so profound because it means that whatever we eat now is because of cultural preference. Uh, just think of millions of species that people did not like. That means they did not replant it. So therefore, we don't have it. So whatever we have, it's because people liked it enough to replant it. And that's the case we, when, when we showcase the heirloom rice with you. We have several heirloom rice here. And these are the original DNA of that the rice that our forefathers grew. Because in order to be considered heirloom, they have to belong to a family. And they are passed down from one generation to another. They are not hybrids. Uh, they are the original grains. So, uh, and uh, just, this is the black glutinous rice from the Dumagats, you know. So, oh, this is our cherry. And you know, I always thought cherries are stone fruits, right? One, one, seed, but I guess not, right? So I, uh, you know, I asked my contact who's, who works for the Department of Science and Technology up there. I said, what do they call this? He said, cherries. 
<laughs> so, uh, you know, that's, that was a... And we use that. We, we make that into a jam. We make ice cream out of that. And these are some of the roots. The, the tugi, I've never encountered the one on the left. That's very, very new. But it's very similar to some of the, uh, the yams and the root crops of uh, the, the Caribbean, you know. So, okay, this is a, uh, did, Alvin, did we bring bananas? No, no? <laughs> you didn't bring a lot. Okay, well, um, <laughs> but it's a lot. I brought like 50 things, so, you know, we can only showcase a, lot, a, a little bit at a time. Um, this, this is called Vulcan, which means volcano. And uh, they said that this particular variety showed up in Tarlac, in Capas, right after Mount Pinatubo erupted. Yeah, so they call it Vulcan. It's so good, it's so sweet. Because of all that volcanic activity. This is another rare indigenous, this is endemic to the Philippines. It's called elephant apple, and uh, it's called katmon. Right now, uh, we find it in a few farms and mostly in the rainforest, and it's endangered. So that's why we keep buying it and using it. We, I wanted to bring it over here, but it was so difficult. It turns black immediately. So uh, you, you just have to use it when you get it. Uh, this is purple yam, and of course, there's so much going on about everybody doing ube purple yam. Unfortunately, there, you know, I find that a lot of it is fake, you know, especially in California. I called up a farm and I said, I heard you grow purple yam. Yes, we do, you know. But uh, isn't that purple sweet potato? And they said, yeah, it is purple sweet potato. It's the same as purple yam. Okay. I mean, the farmers are telling you that in California. Okay, it is not purple sweet potato, okay? All right, that's the new book, that's a new, because we got the second edition in 2012, okay? That's it, okay? So, um, thank you. So, uh, uh, hopefully, uh, hopefully I've left you with, you know, like what I've learned from my readings of uh, Sid Mintz, Ray Sokolov, and Doreen Fernandez. And uh, because of what I learned from them, every, everything that, every bit of data now becomes meaningful because of that theoretical foundation that they left me with, okay? So, Roms, you wanna talk about what you prepared? No. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'll just show what that works. Okay. So um, we have uh, an adobo, pork belly adobo, cooked with sukang uh, iloko, which is sugar cane vinegar from Iloko Sur. And that's the year old. Ah, no. You know, it's cooked with coconut sap vinegar, rums? Coconut sap. Ah, oh, sorry. Okay, so it's cooked with coconut sap vinegar from Sorsogon. Romi comes from that, a town right next to that, right? Where it, it's produced. Uh, and then what else do you have? You have kulawo, 
right? Eggplant kulawo. Okay, the eggplant kulawo is very interesting because it's a cooking method that uh, we, I learned relatively recently, uh, which is about 10 years ago. I found out that uh, Southern Tagalog cooking and Bicol, what they do is they burn freshly grated coconut with a live coal. Well, you know, and they burn it. So, and then when they squeeze it to get the coconut milk, it's, it's barbecued, you know. And then um, in Quezon, these are the Southern Tagalog. Uh, in Quezon, they use hearts of uh, banana hearts. And in Laguna, they use grilled eggplant. And uh, I was told that they make different variations of the burnt coconut cream. Uh, if they, somebody told me, well, when I want to make it a little bit sour, I grate green mango and mash it with the burnt coconut. And, or if I want it spicy, I chop up some uh, chilies and I mash it. So then the coconut milk that they get is already flavored. It's just to me so ingenious. And then they just grill some eggplants and they pour the sauce over it. So uh, it's already flavored. So we have that. Uh, but here in America, we can't do it the way they do it, right? Because we're not it would be illegal to burn coconut with a live coal, right? So what they do is they toast it uh, and then get the, the milk out of it, right? Out of toasted uh, coconut. And then what else do we have? Uh, oh, and then we have the cracker there, which is called kabkab. Uh, it's just, it's pure cassava. And I, I really love the kabkab, uh, not only because it's so delicious, but uh, it's also uh, it's so representative of food that I consider hidden because it's all over. I've, I've been, ever since I found out about it, I've been discovering it in so many areas of the country, but nobody talks about it. You know, I mean, I, I, you know, like, but when you start talking to people, it'll come out. Uh, what else do we have? We have two types of chocolates. Uh, we have uh, uh, we have the, oh the Bicol Express uh, made with what ground pork, coconut milk, and chilies. Right? How many chilies did you use? How many types? Three types of chilies. Okay. That's a dish that supposedly represents Bicol. You know that area. Uh, they they supposedly likes spicy food, but I think only a small portion of that province eats spicy food. And, and from what I heard, it's, it, that dish was invented in Manila, right? But then <laughs> just ascribed to Bicol because that's made of chilies. And then what else? Okay, we have... Uh, Okay, we also have a, a three heirloom rice, the tinawon, the unoy, ulikan, uh, ominyo. Huh? Okay, so we have on display the other grains, right? 
but they cooked uh, two versions uh, of the rice. Uh, two, they're, they're using three heirlooms and one other grain called adlai, which is not rice. It's called Job's Tears, right? But it's another grain that um, the Department of Agriculture in the Philippines is promoting because it's another source of livelihood for farmers. Okay, uh, what else do you have? Okay, right. Oh, okay. Question. Okay, it's not exactly about your talk, but it's about cuisine, whatever. Here, in, I've noticed now there's these dinners, the Kamayan dinners. Kamayan, right, yeah. What do you think of them? That's okay, that's so okay. I've gotten that mixed reaction before. Yeah, um, okay, kamayan for me is... Explain what it is. Okay, kamayan means eating food with your hands. And for me, it's a, more like a situational thing, you know, like that's, you eat with your hands because you have no utensils, you know. Um, and. You know, if people, uh, it's. Uh, okay, you, you know, you know, okay, you know what my reaction was when I read the description. Yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll just tell you because it, it seemed to be people who always ate with a knife and fork, who were now experiencing something that they never experienced. Yes. Kind of. Yeah. Um, some people might call were slumming it. Yeah, yeah. You know, but it, I'm not saying it's a bad thing because sometimes no. it's. Okay, so yeah. my friend Helen, who lived, you know, who grew up in Papanga, uh, her family put her lunch in Tupperware. But her friends that she ate with, they were not in the same economic strata, so their food came wrapped in banana leaves. Mm. She liked their food in the banana leaves mm. better than the food wrapped in the Tupperware. Of course. So she asked the maids if they would wrap her food in banana leaves too, which they did. Yeah. You know, but it was a, she learned that it was a, actually tasted better. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with. I would love to eat from banana leaves all the time if it were available. But see, one thing I found out, you know, banana leaf, you take it for granted. You assume it's any banana leaf. No, it's not. I found out that it's a particular variety of banana, the Sabah because it has the least tannins. Regular banana leaves have so much tannin that if you used it for cooking or for eating, you'd have bitter food. I, I, just, learned, I, I just learned that maybe about four or five years ago. And that's why a lot of people who do rice cakes and they wrap with banana leaves, they have to grow, they, they have to grow those bananas. To, to provide the leaves. Um, going back to Kamayan, I mean, I think there, uh, like, there are um, way, reasons for doing that, like picnics, or like, especially if you're having seafood, you use your hands. But uh, it's an affect, I, I feel it's an affectation here. Mm -hmm. And, you know, fine, you know, if people have a good time, it's okay. But, 
you know, but for me, it's like, you know, they're going through a phase. <laughs> you know, like, but for me, it doesn't really give you anything about the food and the culture. So, you know, if you want to just play around with the food. It's an interesting experience. We, we did gather once and did experience just because I wanted to try it. I knew it wasn't like two, three people at a table. You needed a group. But, but don't we do it? Because um, when we're uh, having a picnic and you're with your family, and they usefully have all yeah. the... Yeah, that's, that's what I'm saying. It depends on the situation. But, you know, you put it in a restaurant. It's, it's, it, just, it just isn't that. You know, you have to be near the seaside. You have the seafood coming in. You've got your family. Yes, yeah. But in a restaurant in the States. But they also call it Coca-Cola getting filled. Yeah, they call it Budo. Yeah. Right. I just, it's not, I don't think it's an insult, but uh, it's just so out of context, you know, that it's just for fun, but, um, and, and it's fine, as I said, you know, if you just want to have fun, but, you know, if you really want to promote Filipino food, there are better ways of doing it, you know, so... I might still, again, do it someday. Yeah, it was just, uh, you know, I'm not going to be the food oh, police, you know. I, I went to her, and I let, I let a group, for, I let another group back there. I'm sorry? I went to her, and I found I did another group back in the same place. <laughs> I know, they had some good business from that time. <laughs> yeah. Um, before the Spanish came, what kind of birds would you use for, like, a chicken Oh, my God, there were so many things from the forest. they're not there anymore. You know, like I read, like, um, Doreen Fernandez said that there were wild chickens. They'd be different than the ones I'm sure, well, you know. Yeah, I guess whatever ducks flew there or, you know. There were, there were a lot more stuff and a lot of them are gone. They've been killed off by pesticides and I guess over yeah, overeating, being eaten by, <laughs> like snipes are gone, you know, the rice birds. Well, I, 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 still, I still ate them when I returned to the Philippines in the 1990s. They were still being served in restaurants, now they're gone. Like the quail, we don't see quail anymore. By the way, um, about what, 10 years ago or so, there was a cicada um, well, not cicada. Cicada. Locust? Or, yeah. Or, or, you know, or the cricket? No, we're talking cicada. 17 years. Yeah. 17 years cicada. We had a, an infestation. And Helen's mother 
told me about in the Philippines how they cooked insects adobo style. So I made cicada adobo. And was it good? <laughs> I like how you put it. Yeah, it was fine. But the people, okay, so this was an odd dinner. There were about 10 of us that were willing to cook and eat cicadas. There were another 20 people who were invited to watch the people cook and eat the cicadas. So it was like, you know, the Christians being fed to the lions with a cheering little crowd who wouldn't touch it. It was very bizarre. When I did make cicada adobo, the lady thought I made it like a joke. So when it was over, she threw it all away. I was like, what? I wanted to take it home. I want you know, to serve it to you. Was it available? I went and got my own cicadas. I went outside and collected them. How? <laughs> and how did you prepare them? Did you have to pull away the wings and all oh, that? Oh, those were still in the, before they put out the wings. Ah. So it was, they came, but they did kind of like, at one point, don't you start with frying? So they fried, so then they contracted. Then I added some of the liquid, and then they blew up again. It was quite exciting. Yeah. Well, I've yeah, eaten. Well, they they have the thing, the mole cricket, which is called kamaru. Yeah, and I, I I've had it a couple of times. Like, well, if Helen hadn't mentioned it, I never would have thought of it. It's kind of like when you're eating it, then the shells are still chewy yeah. and like. <laughs> but if if they cook it, they do it adobo style, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So. But and the one sister, I had that. Your little sister ate it, but you wouldn't, right? Yeah. Yes. When you talk about different kinds of vinegars and different like things you can use for different recipes, do you talk about that like in your book or other places? I know we can't probably get some of the things that you talk about here in the states. Some things that are very localized, but the other kind of varieties that maybe we don't know about that we could get here. Yes. You know, um, every culture has great vinegars. Like, uh, well, apple cider vinegar is so beautiful. And then we use rice vinegar, which the Japanese produce in California. Um, and in Canada, when we go there, we're going to use maple vinegar. And there's, uh, there's red wine vinegar, white wine vinegar, as long as it's real vinegar. And unfortunately, most of the vinegars you get here from the Philippines are not real vinegars because they're really expensive. Like uh, my mulberry vinegar is like $20 a liter and it, it's, I get from the woman who makes it. Uh, these are not cheap because it's easier to produce acetic acid in a factory rather than waiting for the sap to collect you know, uh, and how many trees do you go to? I've seen the nipa. I've seen them uh, collect sap from the nipa palm. It's very interesting because the nipa, I suppose, see, they all look different, right? The coconut, well, you know what the coconut looks like, but the nipa they shoot out from the ground, so it's very easy because the the thing that comes out, you don't have to climb a tree. It's just this long stalk. And then there's all these uh, very hard fruits that, that come out at the end. And you know that that's where the, that, and you know that the tree is feeding that, right? So you know the sap. The sap is what the tree gives to a future fruit, right? 
So uh, that's why you, when you get the sap from the coconut, you have to look for a twig that's producing a bud. And so you cut that thing and you put a bamboo tube to collect it and the tree is still feeding it, right? So that's what you collect. So the nipa, you know, they, they bend it over and they, they have to pound it like 40 times. I, I, I don't know why, but they say that if you don't pound it, it I guess it cre creates a vacuum and some pressure and the sap cups up. And then they collect like, they collect uh, for like two hours in the morning and then it runs out of sap. Then you gotta wait until at night, then it will have more sap. It's very, very interesting, you know. Um, but it's hard work, you know. So, but uh, we have been able to use good vinegars here. Uh, you know, apple cider vinegar, uh, the rice wine, uh, there's, and then uh, I've seen some coconut vinegar co from the Caribbean. They're all very expensive, but if you really want, uh, you can look at other cultures that bring in their vinegars. Very interesting. But those are the sources that I know. You know, fruits, uh, sugar cane, and palm from the palms. I don't know what else, where else you can get. Rice, uh, grains, right, like rice you can get. Um, I don't know. Well, I'm wondering where in the Chicago area we can get some of these, maybe not the expensive things, but... but um, the, the that coconut sap vinegar... Um, I think you, if you Google NUCO, N-U-C-O. Yeah. There's, they, they, they distribute the coconut sap vinegar here. And I think Whole Foods, well, I used to buy it from Whole Foods. It was like $7 for a 375 ml. Um, I know that that was the one main question that was uh, asked of me. Well, if you're going to bring those ingredients and people are going to ask, how are they going to get it? Well, uh, that's why um, I, this is just the start. Some, in, some of them are available, like that coconut sap vinegar. Uh, somebody brings it here and repackages them, and it's that same vinegar. So it's not like, oh, it's another vinegar. So this is that, I think it's Nuco. In and, fact, the last time I saw you, you mentioned about the coconut vinegar. Yeah. And I you got it. And I bought some of them right, off, right after that. Whole, yeah, she's been sending it here for a long time. Yeah. Uh, and then there's chocolate, that, and they're based here in Illinois. The Malagos chocolate, that's available. The, the chocolate that we have here is just very new. Uh, they're not yet available, but they will, they will be looking for distributors. The, the, it, the, the, the two chocolates I have here, it's the same maker. They're just like a couple of people making it. They call it Tigre y Oliva, so tiger and olive. Um, and they're custom made for me, so they asked me, well, how do you want it? Like, so there's 
60, some, 60 and 80 percent. Uh, and it has no lecithin, no flavor, no, no vanilla. It's very pure and single origin from Davao in Mindanao. Um, the one thing about all these ingredients, they are first class. They are products of integrity, otherwise I won't use them. There are many, many ingredients that are available, but I make sure I know the producer. You know, uh, there's integrity, and I've tried it. I've seen some of the farms. Um, <coughs> the chocolate, it's not in the... Is it from the New World? It's, it's yes, it is. Yeah. It is. So it's not indigenous. You, you know, it depends it's on how... It's been there for so long. Yes, it becomes indigenous. Well, corn, you wouldn't say corn is indigenous. Yeah. Well, I remember in, like, in the write-up, he talked about the, the galley and the tree. <coughs> yeah. You know, what was it? 50, I had to look it up because I'd never heard of it before. It was like, what, 1528 to 17? Yeah, it's about 250 years. Yeah. I'd never heard of it. And the, the reason it stopped was when Mexico got its independence. Because it was Manila and Acapulco, and then when they lost Mexico, it stopped. Right? But uh, talking about indigenous, uh, I, I consider it indigenous. Or, no, I mean, a lot of these are, you know, there's indigenous and there's, you know, uh, something that came from our environment. Uh, and they've been there for a long, long time. And we have found coffee uh, that have been wildened. Um, they didn't bring it, right? <laughs> you know. If you Did you bring the coffee? <laughs> no. Poor guy. <laughs> I thought I made a list. It was not in the list. It was not in the list. Oh, that's okay. okay. Anyway, um, it's uh, it, it's a what they. I, I, we were very surprised to find like she, they said that they this is wild and arabica. And it's been there even before the Spanish came. I, I'm pretty sure that the settlers from Sumatra or from that, what is now Indonesia that came. Because, you know, from the very beginning, a lot of these islands were probably empty, right? And the first settlers that traveled from India and from the other Southeast Asian countries came bringing stuff with them. So, uh, you know, and, and a lot of them. Well, this has been great. But I think we should probably go and try out everything that we've talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you very much. Okay. And, and we'll be there.